Hi, this is Mike Edelhart, and I'm here with another edition of Inception, our podcast about uh, beginnings, beginnings of new ideas in science and tech and new companies, uh, sometimes even a little look at the future. And I say this fairly often, actually, but we have a bit of all of that here today with Jamie uh, McCroskey from uh, Bluebird. Um, and uh, we invested in you, it feels like five minutes ago. I mean, uh, yeah. usually there's a fair amount of time between making an investment and chatting and, and ours is really, uh, really quick. Um, you know, the name Bluebird doesn't say a whole heck of a lot to anybody about what you actually do. So uh, why don't we just start with that? What is Bluebird? Yeah, Bluebird is a software platform that consumers brand, consumer brands think beauty, personal care, health, uh, fashion used to produce low carbon products and make it super easy to do that and then communicate out all that work to retailers and their end customers so they can move marketing metrics. The idea is it's really, really complicated to figure out sustainability around supply chains and products. You have millions of ideas. We simplify that decision-making and we simplify marketing it out. We're increasingly onboarding vendors as well. So instead of just having information about how to produce these products, you can actually directly procure within the software. So now there's this whole new space that makes it easy uh, to get low carbon products up from the start. Got it. And and uh, it's maybe a little bit of a leading question, but why now? In other words, there's been a lot of talk about green this, green that for a while. Um, and why do you think this is the moment when brands might find it valuable enough to actually um, change? their products or develop their products around these kinds of this kind of data. Yeah, I, there's there's three main forces happening that is different than, you know, like the early 2000s sustainability push. Number one is there's increasing regulation around it. So yes, public companies are having to disclose climate risks and measurements. But um, really, there's a lot of a new regulation coming out about what you can say about your products. You know, every single brand and product is really trying to tell a differentiated story in the market and they have to meet table stakes for consumer expectations. A lot of new regulations, especially in the UK, are saying, hey, you can't just hand wave your way around sustainability. If you're going to talk about it, which 75% of beauty products do, you have to back it up math uh, and show where you're, you're getting all your data from assumptions. The second thing is retailers are also starting to put together sustainability programs because they want to differentiate and show their consumers that they care. So they're actually putting together some pretty hard requirements that these brands have to adhere to. And the last is, is customers are asking for it. And yes, there is survey data, but it's actually bearing out in the sales as well. So for a lot of our brands, sustainability is the number one reason for churn, which might be a surprise to a lot of brands out there because they haven't looked at churn and looked at sustainability uh, in the right way there. So to me, this all those are all the macro forces, but all bears out in the um, in the data here for us. Like we are starting to sponsor some newsletters and we're actually booked wall to wall in our week with customer meetings. So that's how I know they care is that if we're talking about yeah. every day. Yeah. Voting with their feet. So it might be a good idea to help folks get a little better sense of just what the product is. So you're doing this with data, right? So you're allowing company X to say, if I use packaging supplier A versus packaging supplier B, there's a specific impact that comes to us and with other components uh, of my supply chain, product, uh, 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 ingredients, and that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's two main ways that brands use us. One is new product development. So you have, you know, launch calendar of two years and you're thinking about launching a new skin cleanser. You have all these different ideas for packaging ingredients. Maybe you're even talking to vendors, getting proposals back. It's really hard to know like, which is the quote-unquote sustainable choice that is going to be marketable and authentic and isn't going to create a liability on the shelf for the next five years. You're going to have to repack. So what brands use us for is saying like, okay, if we have an idea internally and we don't really have full specs, let's just do side-by-side -side concepts for different packaging, for different places, different ingredients. Which ones are going to be the lowest carbon, lowest waste, given everything we know? We make that super fast. And then when they actually get proposals back from vendors, we get pretty specific say like, hey, this is the electricity at this vendor location. For example, this is how it impacts carbon emissions. You should go with this proposal. Um, obviously, they're looking at costs and lead times and all these other business uh, business metrics to know how and, when, and who to source from. But the sustainability story and having that from the beginning is super helpful to know if you're going to be able to go to market with a real, right. uh, real launch. The other way is, like, okay, those, those are new products, but what about everything that's on the shelf? So companies will upload their products to, to Bluebird and see which ones are doing better or worse compared to average in the market. And the better ones you can start marketing today and showing all the hard work you've done. And the worst ones, those are liabilities they might want to improve. And so the next time you repack, you can use our software to generate opportunities to figure out how to improve or test your own ideas. And how does Bluebird know that about all these components? How do you know that uh, uh, A is greener than B and uh, the environmental uh, coefficient that goes with each of these things? Yeah, and I mean, the thing I'll say up front is like, you wish that the sustainability uh, industry was 50 years farther ahead than it is right now. A lot of stuff is based on estimates. So we have spent essentially the past 18 months building these algorithms that describe how each type of product is typically made. So take like a you know, skin cleanser, for example, we like index all these different types of packaging components. We've talked to all the vendors to see the production processes and where the raw materials are sourced from, how they're transported. That allows these brands to essentially get set up with saying like, hey, here are the specs I have. I don't know really what's happening in the supply chain, but we have good assumptions. This is based on, you know, I, I didn't mention this, but we have a lot of advisors who have been doing this stuff for a long time. So the founders of the Patagonia Environmental Program, out of Bench Manufacturing and Vendor Sustainability, along with people from Unilever and L'Oreal, um, say like, okay, here are the general practices in the industry. Uh, that obviously is an estimate. And what happens is now that we're onboarding vendors, we're actually getting data from them as well um, to say like, okay, well, like what's really actually happening in the factory floor? Where are we actually procuring our raw materials from? And that allows us to be like pretty, pretty certain about what's the sustainability impact of carbon emissions and waste. Um, and the, what's really interesting, I think the thing that we're, I'm particularly excited about is we've unlocked the business incentive for these vendors to give up this information is because right. we have this huge audience of buyers. We're like, okay, great. Well, if I can access them and we know that they're buying based sustainability, of course we'll give it to you, <laughs> which is better for everybody. So you're basically playing both sides against one another to some degree to increase the data uh, that you have from uh, both sides and just make it stronger and stronger. Yeah, it's just, I mean, because sustainability isn't like really, really, really mandated by law. I feel like, you know, you guys all have to decrease your emissions. What we have to do as a company is create a series of incentives that point everyone to do the right thing. So you have to make brands money. 
Right. That's why we have the marketing thing. And that and then we make help them make decisions about the products to enable the marketing, and then we're connecting the vendors to sell to them as well. So um, you know, you got to this by maybe not the most direct path. I mean, it sort of makes sense when one thinks about it, but let's talk about that for a minute because you are not an environmental guy to start mm -hmm. with. You were a nerd like the rest of us. Yeah. Well, everyone's a nerd deep down, whether they realize it or not. <laughs> yes, Everybody I mean, who's cool is a nerd deep down. Yes, uh, exactly. That, but, all the nerds yeah. say, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my background is really in the hard sciences and business. So I'd studied neuroscience and business in college. And that really was designed to like make an impact you know, through health. Um, I was working on bringing lab discoveries to the market. I got sucked into... You know, working in technology at software companies like Dropbox because you can ship things so fast and software is a new thing for me out of school. I was like, oh, wow, like a million people use this. There's tons of applications out there. I kind of had an interesting life moment while I was working at Dropbox. Where I, I um, got pretty into the outdoors. <laughs> so I took these mountaineering classes. I lived in a glacier for two and a half weeks in New Zealand and kind of had my eyes opened up to like a new pillar in life that I cared about, which was which was nature and the human connection to it. Um, so I then spent a lot of time, you know, I was working in these big tech companies and even at brands, like thinking about how I can make an impact either through health or the environment. One thing or life circumstances ultimately led me back to New York where I had an opportunity kind of came into my lap to work at Glossier and lead the technology team there. They had a bunch of interesting bets trying to become the Google for beauty for me, I was like, oh, wow, if I can understand how the beauty consumer makes up their minds, I can understand any, any user because it was so far different for me. And also, I'd heard from so many different people that putting themselves out in the world is such a, a big source of confidence that does you know, improve health uh, along with it. So that's actually where I got this interesting kind of hybrid of seeing these beauty brands and customers uh, buying from them, but also seeing the sustainability impact there. The other big moment for me was Glossy had hired someone from Patagonia to to lead quality. And, uh, you know, obviously I went and talked to him and we're, we were just noticing some of these sustainability problems that were also happening when customers were starting to be more vocal about it. And that's when I really saw the intersection, like, oh, wow, you mean impact by helping these brands uh, reduce the sustainability or improve the sustainability of their products, which ultimately will help them make money. Oh my God, okay, great. This is an opportunity that software can really um, help address as well. And then I you know, left and started with the company. Got it. So if things go just as you hope they would go, what does this look like a year from now, five years from uh, uh, now? Is this the 10,000 pound bluebird in the room kind of thing? Uh, but where does it all head? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways I look at it. One is from an impact standpoint, just to could be our impact business. Three of the top 10 carbon mining supply chains are fast moving consumer goods, beauty, personal care, apparel, CPG, food. Uh, we want to make an impact in that. There are so much excess carbon emissions uh, for so many reasons that we can help reduce. We've helped companies reduce the carbon emissions by 78% in some cases, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, but really, I think what we're trying to do is just create a like a new way in which this gigantic industry, which is around consumer spending, constructs products. So we want to, you know, if you think about what we're doing right now, you know, we're starting with brands, we're bringing on their vendors, bringing on the sub vendors. That then creates the incentive structure for 
allowing all these new innovations in sustainability. For example, like we've heard a lot from vendors to say like, hey, yeah, you know, if I install a solar panel on my facility, yeah, I know it's going to reduce carbon emissions a lot, but I'd rather procure this really expensive raw material because my customers are asking for it. Instead, if we can create a world and say like, hey, all these brands are asking you to do that because we're the Bluebird's guide and to ask you, we can then commit demand for those investments and then bring new low carbon options to market. So I fast forward, you know, 10 years from now, you know, we're working across CPG and all these different verticals and we've essentially created um, new innovation, markets for new innovations for low carbon technologies and processes and materials. So, um, uh, you know, in my mind, this comes back fundamentally though to the individual. In other words, if consumers um, weren't now acting against uh, environmental concerns. And 20 years ago, they weren't. 10 years ago, they were talking about it. But in the end, the cheaper one I'm going with, now the sense we're getting is there's two side by side. And I will actually buy the environmental one, the one I believe is going to give us the best shot of having a livable planet for my kids and grandkids and that kind of thing. And uh, the price is still there, but receding in many of these other more traditional buying uh, hooks are receding. And the one that is charging to the fore is, is this product bad for the planet or better for the planet? And the better for the planet products are going to win. And that's what's driving companies now to take this all so much more seriously and commit to Bluebird and commit to product reformulations and a whole host of things. Yeah, I, th there would be no market for any of this stuff if consumers didn't care. At the end of the day, that's the only thing businesses care about is how they're going to sell products to consumers. And so consumers caring is, is the most important thing for any of this to work um, outside of like some crazy government re regulation that we all hope happens. Um, and so, yeah, th I think the what we're seeing is that customers are more, like when you buy a product, yeah, you're buying the function, but you're also buying the feeling of buying that product and you want to feel good about it. So that's why companies like Patagonia do so well. It's like, oh, I feel like I'm getting, I'm getting this amazing product, yes, but I'm also feeling like I'm doing the right thing. So that's why we're seeing a lot of loyalty increases when brands do the right thing around sustainability and demonstrate it credibly. Because it's like, oh, great, I want to support this organization that's doing the, like increasing, you know, making the world a better place, just like I want to do as a human being. But yeah, I think for, it's a funny thing because people ask me all the time, like, oh, do my individual things as a consumer make a difference you know what if I, you know my single purchase doesn't matter it's like well this is it's kind of the same thing about democracy it's like right everyone it does matter i can't point to you specifically but really we all have to think collectively it really makes a difference and if you ask brand people or marketing people at companies like that's the thing they're paying attention to and they know it too well yeah the you know how do you thaw something in a hurry, little teeny tiny drips yeah. of water, little teeny tiny drips of water. Um, and each drip doesn't make much of a difference, but taken together, they transform the state of something really quick. And it's the same thing uh, here. And, you know, a, a brand is a conception held in the mind of the consumer. And the uh, conceptions created in previous generations are simply say it out loud, not as powerful, not as evocative, not as appropriate, not as generationally 
um, well situated as they used to be. And um, that creates the need for, desire for, requirement for new brands. And these environmental factors, uh, I think, are core uh, to those yeah. uh, brand concepts. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's also why we see we see the most interest, I would say, from like the small, medium-sized brands. They're the ones who are nimble. They're the ones who are making the real promises to customers. You know, you know what's funny is that the bigger companies follow because they right. their sales are threatened by the small ones, and they acquire those small ones as well. <laughs> they're always playing catch up and more risk averse. You know, they're, they're the ones who are like. Um, you know, you know, just organizational complexity and incentives makes it harder to, to innovate on that stuff. But the small ones, yeah, are really making a huge impact. Yeah. So any any small brand out there, like, it's not even just you and your own sales. It's like people are looking at what you're doing, right? Whether it's other consumers or other companies, big and small. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, and consumers communicating. And if we had a company where one TikTok post about this company and how great this one product was yeah, and now this product awesome. was better than the traditional product and produced a better effect <clears throat> quadruple sales quadruple sales at exactly no cost it's essentially consumers wow. banding together in this uh, uh, new tribal way to say let's all go reward this product and as a result not reward that product yeah. and yeah. neither company would necessarily see that coming because it's not any sort of traditional behavior. But now this, our portfolio companies selling a moisturizer every 30 seconds because consumers have decided we want them to win. We like them. We think this is good. That reflects our values. And um, and yeah, that kind of thing with a rising company caused a bunch of big companies to go say, what? What just happened? How did that happen? Do we got a program running over there? Do we know anything about any of these behaviors? And the answer is no. They're really good at shelf space. They're really yeah. good at optimized shipping. And uh, now they're facing a situation where those are not the uh, uh, salient issues. Yeah. And it, it is, you know, I, I do have some uh, sympathy. It's like if you're, you know, if you're eking out a quarter of a percent increase in units because you're selling a bazillion units, that's probably a hard thing to do. So you have to manage your, Existing distribution and it's hard to kind of make investments in the in like the more nascent things like out there to TikTok. By the way, you should totally get them on uh on the podcast. <laughs> I would oh, love to listen yeah. to how they did that. Yeah, we've had her um uh, uh the CEO of that company on. She's always had it in the sense of she started that company, not to spend your time talking about another company. She started that no, company no, by popping up and saying, I have a new thing aimed at very, very young teenage girls. I'm gonna put it on the market. On this day, and I'm going to sell 100,000 the first day. And we're all like, ah, every once in a while you run across an entrepreneur who's like completely delusional. She did. <laughs> she did. She was like, I know what these young women want, and I'm determined to give it to them. And at every point in the development of that company, that's what she's done. She's way down inside the heads of these young women, basically saying, we're in this together, sisters, and here's what you want a company to give you and I'm giving it to you. And they're then saying, well, oh, see, she's us. Yeah. It's uh, actually reminds me a lot of Glossier. There's such a fine line of um, delusion and genius because you, you know, you have data, you have all these different inputs as a founder, because you can't read the crystal ball and there's a million possible future states. Yeah. And so you have to trust your intuition, which makes you feel crazy and it's risky. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you just have to put a stake in the ground. That's great. She said like, <laughs> I, 
high bar and a high stake and, and hit it and relied on that intuition that you somehow has gathered. Yeah, I agree with you, by the way. It, there is a very fine line between um, sort of process and um, just gut intuition here that makes a great merchant. In, in my old days of media, same thing. We used to have, we called them the mad monks, that there were folks, and this is even before spreadsheets, and this was a long time ago, where they would just sit there looking at data, looking at down sheets, looking at data, look, and then they would say sort of the equivalent of um, super release bindings on ski, the people are ready for this. And, and you go, okay. And you start saying super release bind, you put it on the cover of a magazine, sales triple. The concept That's was funny. just right at that moment. Um, uh, and all kinds of things have happened that way, right? Americans didn't use to eat sushi. Americans didn't use to drink espresso. And somebody picked up at the moment. It's just far enough ahead that they'll do it. But if you do it wrong, you get the total factor. And folks are like, no way. I can't. That's insulting. That's bizarre. So it's really has to be very carefully, uh, carefully done. And same thing is going to be true with environmental yeah, exactly. Uh, 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 too far is too far. You can only lead folks a little, and you have to sort of understand what they really want inside and what they'll respond to, and and try and get out front on that enough, but not yeah. Too That's been a really interesting balance. That are you know we have employees who are mission oriented. We also are trying to accomplish our mission really is to decarbonize the consumer products industry. It's like okay, great. How do you do that? Do you have a bunch of activists who are like? yelling from the sidelines of these brands and do better. That's one way to do it. But another way to do it is like give them the tools to accomplish their own business goals and accomplish sustainability at the same time uh, is our attack at least. One other thing you mentioned there too, Mike, is that's really interesting is like market creation. You know, Starbucks created the espresso real copy market um, in the United States. Uh, it is, and even like the super, real, the, the ski bindings example, it's like, were people ready for it or did you just tell the story that they're ready for it and then you create the market? It, I, well, we're actually in a similar kind of situation here where we're creating a market and it's, you know, you ask people about the problems they have and you go and solve them. Um, that's like the traditional way of developing products. Um, but at the same time, there's a special element here of people have no idea that there are real solutions out there. So they're not even looking for it, um, nor are they able to really articulate their problems because they're so new which makes it really hard to develop products because people don't have vocabulary, but it's also this amazing opportunity to begin to find the market and you own it and you capture it and yeah. you set the terms. Yeah, exactly. That's one reason why we're here as investors. We're big believers uh, in what we call lists of power. So what do you do? And if you have this long list of environmental factors on the packaging or something, folks can't react to that. If the vendor says, no, green, they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's always, in every market I've been involved in, there's a desire by consumers to look at something and go, really? Uh, better housekeeping approved? Ziff Davis lab tested? You know, uh, Underwriters Laboratory certified? Something we're look at and say, okay. And, um, and the uh, uh, aggregation of data up to those sort of higher levels of rationalization have real power in markets because they allow folks to do what it is they really want to do uh, practically, functionally, and therefore uh, reflect back the, parker, the power of all those consumers in the market to the companies and say, well, 
we're they're responding to the market through us so you better have some idea of what our system saying about you yeah that's super interesting i, I mean I, I love uh hearing your experience about this from uh, from the editorial days uh because there are there's so many parallels you know, simplifying what it is i mean you know computer specs for example it's like i'm gonna have a huge list of computer specs it's like okay like which one should i look at and how yeah. is that greg and some simple heuristic and there's a ton of data and work that goes underneath that but you know you create network effects um in a, in a lot of different ways that really strengthens what you're doing and helps everyone. yeah it gives folks uh, we uh, a peg to hang their hat on it's truthful enough to take action on without getting the 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 thing that could cause you an issue one person's opinion and others doing this type of things is if you start getting snagged on academic purity but is it absolutely true is it true to the nth degree is it true in 112 percent of available circumstances it's never going to be that good so it has to be sort of truthful enough to act on without getting all caught up in uh too high uh a fixation on precision yeah th that's why in large part why we spent so much time up front figuring out these data models because we didn't know how precise they had to be because there's no like correct answer with this stuff anyway everything is yeah. built on assumptions and uh and estimations and you kind of like lean on how the academics are doing it as the purity test but at the same time we've also seen in the space that a huge reason why there isn't a solution yet is that everyone's getting hung up on the data for example, you know, you spend a year looking at your supply chain, figuring out who the, all the suppliers are, figuring out all the carbon emissions, which is super insanely labor intensive and expensive, if, if at all possible, that supply chain is going to change by the time you've gotten all the data. It's like, okay, great. Now, what was the point of that at all? But in reality, like if you get an 80-20, it's like you start incrementally making decisions in the right way. You just, you, but you're not saying I'm the most sustainable. It's like you're just saying what you know and what you don't know and being right. transparent about it. And then the data gets better and better and better, even more disclosures, and you know, eventually gets there. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you do the if you do this right, you can addict the market to it. And if you addict the market to it, then uh, you can get this flywheel effect going. Uh, which what you're just talking about, which is the vendors use and it goes into their planning because it goes into their planning, it's predictable with products that come out and 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 off off you go. And and uh and again, uh, as if we did this and and the power sustained for like 12 years, uh, really wow. until the internet came out and, and and then the whole market shifted again. So then we'd have to restart on a whole separate set of uh, fundamentals, which is fine. But all the PC fundamentals were like, eh, doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and it, as it does now, again, if the internet went down on the computers we're on right now, we just switched to the phone. Um, it, it, all of the singularities, and I know folks around me, they just started on the phone and they go, why are you doing that on the computer anyway? I don't get it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and that's when the market shift and those kind of central tenants uh, get torn down and, and rebuilt in another way. Um, yeah. We could go on like this. Uh, this happened the first time we met, happened the second time we met, it's happening now, we could just... We started squirreling on the tablecloth, whatever, but um, we do have to wrap this. Yep. So, um, so you know, you guys are a pulse, uh, if you do this right, of this emerging space. So we should get together pretty often, you know, six months, a year again, uh, and do this again and, and talk about what you've seen and who's using it and what change has been 
engendered because if you're doing your job right, you should be bringing about market change. And um, uh, and that's uh, uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, our core advantage of SARPA is moving fast and learning fast. So I will definitely have learnings and hopefully market change along with it in that time frame. Sounds good. So six months, let's say six months. Yeah, six months sounds perfect. All right, thanks. Thanks, Mike.